the Jewish views on Vijay Patel. The Jewish community is doing its part to help the family of the murdered shopkeeper from Mill Hill. Alex Smith of the Ben Uri Gallery tells us how they are celebrating jazz this January. And the ageless job search. We hear how Resource is helping the older members of the community back into work. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The chief rabbi has condemned as extremely disturbing the tactics of a child sex abuser who was jailed for three years in 2013 after he paid for and completed a Sefer Torah scroll before donating it to the Chabad community in Golders Green. Menachem Levy, known as Mendy, was criticised by Ephraim Mervis for seeking public acclaim by donating the scroll, which was subsequently rejected. A rabbi in northwest London has launched a crowdfunding appeal to raise money for the family of Vijay Patel, the 49-year-old shopkeeper who died after being attacked in Mill Hill last weekend. Rabbi Yitzhak from Mill Hill United Synagogue urged Jewish community members to demonstrate compassion for Mr Patel's family. He was knocked to the ground outside the Rota Express grocery store after refusing to sell tobacco products to an underage boy. A 16-year-old boy from Brent has been charged with his murder. In France, two kosher shops near Paris were severely damaged in a fire a fortnight after swastikas were painted on both stores. Police didn't say whether the fire was the result of arson. The incident, in which no one was hurt, happened on the third anniversary of a Muslim terrorist killing four Jews in a different kosher supermarket in eastern Paris. An elderly Jewish couple from London have had their dream holiday ruined by a South African immigration error made in 2014. Joan and Alex Klein, who are 89 and 93 respectively, had to get special flights home costing £9,000 from Namibia when they were refused permission to leave a cruise ship in Cape Town. Officials had boarded the Crystal Symphony to check documents, only to discover a missing exit stamp in both of the Kleins' passports from a previous trip three years ago. The Kleins' horrendous experience, their children said, was caused by the very same South African Immigration Authority's mistake. And finally, an iconic liberal synagogue building has held its very last service. Members of the Essex Liberal Shul paid a fond farewell to Perriman's Farm Road in Redbridge. Rabbi David Hulbert led a special Shabbat morning service for around 150 people and spoke of the wonderful memories created in a building that had served his Bet Tikvah community for more than 30 years. That's the news roundup. Over to Andrew with the sport. Thank you very much, Viv. The first tennis Grand Slam of the year gets underway on Monday with Israel's only singles player, Dudi Seller, facing a tough opening round clash against American Ryan Harrison. Yoni Ehrlich is the other senior Israeli taking part in the Australian Open, with other Jewish interests including Argentine Diego Schwartzman and Italian Camilla Giorgi. Elsewhere, a supporter of Norwood, who battled back from a traumatic injury suffered in a rugby match, will be competing for GB at the Winter Swimming World Championships in Estonia. 52-year-old Warren Phelops, who was left nearly paralysed from the incident in 2002, has so far raised £500 for the charity, having completed a six-month challenge and is now set to represent his country in March. And finally, 
Nir Bisson has told reporters how he tried to cope when he came up against the world's most expensive footballer in a recent Champions League match. Revealing, he said the Shamar every time Neymar ran towards him. Unfortunately, it didn't help him too much as Celtic were on the wrong end of a 7-1 thrashing by PSG. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we usually do, with a glance over your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. And as we have a look at the front page, the first headline that stands out is Chief Condemns Child Sex Abusers' Torah Donation. Yeah, extraordinary, appalling misjudgment on the part of quite a lot of senior figures in the Jewish community. A couple of weeks ago, an event took place in which a thousand men, women and children celebrated in Golders Green at the dedication of a new Sefer Torah. Now, obviously, that's a joyous, wonderful simcha and something that should be celebrated. The problem was it was donated by and completed by one Mr. Mendy Mendel Levy, who listeners may remember was sent to prison three, four years ago for the sexual abuse of a minor, released about a year or so ago, and clearly is using this as an opportunity to perhaps whitewash his misdemeanours, to put them mildly, of the past. And while you can't really blame the thousand or so people that went along to celebrate, you certainly can the religious leaders that should very, very much have known better. I mean, this was no secret that this is the person who was behind this, the chief rabbi himself, which I think underlines the disgust that a lot of people feel about this, felt it was incumbent upon him to call this move extremely disturbing. I should say, of course, that Chabad Lubavitch UK very quickly came forward and said that they had absolutely no idea that this event was taking place and that the Golders Green branch had acted independently, but they may have acted independently, but they, they've acted in a way that beggars belief. But it has been rejected now or what? What's the status? Where is the Sefer Torah score at the moment? Now, that is a very interesting side point here because Sefer Torah, I don't know how much it costs. I mean, I'm sure it costs hundreds, if not thousands of pounds. I don't no, know it's, how... it's definitely into the thousands. Yeah. How long does it take? I mean, this is the, 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 this is handwritten script that probably takes the best part of, I don't know, a year or so. This is a precious, precious commodity. And now it's basically been rendered unusable. I presume that other people aren't going to take it on, but it will just be retained by him uh, at his home. And if he's got the resource to be behind the Sefer Torah scroll, I I presume it's not the the biggest loss he could possibly suffer. I would also say that if indeed this was aimed at a uh, as as a stunt to to kind of reinvigorate himself within the Jewish community, it's the massive misjudgment on his part as well, because he must have known that once this got out there, once that poster was seen with his name on, that some figures, Chief Rabbi included, would have to say the kind of things they've said. And the, the statement from the Chief Rabbi this week was particularly strong and has really put a, a stick in the sand here. I think that if he was ruined by the publicity to some extent within the community at the time of his conviction, this is just put him back on the front pages again and, and, and he's he's not done himself any favours. But in the interest of balance, and this is by no stretch of the imagination is me stating my point, let me make that very clear, he has done his time for the crime. Does that not mean that he is not now eligible for a chance to move on from that? Well, I mean, of course, I mean, there's every opportunity for people that have 
pay their dues and, uh, and convicted criminals have, have made, hopefully made amends. But I mean, th- this is a brazen act by a man who I think would be better off just disappearing into the distance and, and not reinventing himself as, as, this, as, as, as a benchmark or as a, as a figure of someone to be celebrated and uh, admired for a contribution that he makes to the community. The chief rabbi has told the Jewish News this week, the very idea that a man convicted of sexual abuse should seek public acclaim in this way is extremely disturbing. So for him to say that, I think that that does speak volumes. I'd also like to quote Yehudis Goldsobel, and I think we absolutely need to keep at the very front of our mind the the courageous, eloquent spokesperson for people that go through this in the community, the victim of Mendel Levy, who has written quite the most powerful opinion piece we've published in many a month in this week's paper, headlined, Honouring a Sex Abuser and Shunning His Victim. I'll just read literally just a paragraph she's written, I refuse to believe humans can really be this thoughtless, more so when it is leadership roles in the community organisations. Where is the leadership for victims of sexual abuse? We deserve more. Not in my name will victims not matter to those in power. Members of our community, I implore you, use your voice and take a stand with me, not in your name. How extraordinary. Okay, let's have a look at some of the other stories making the paper this week. And on page four, Barnett's kosher restaurants more likely to be unhygienic. How unfortunate. Yes, Food Standards Agency, the latest figures. Now, these could be up to two months old, so we we could be a little bit out of date here, but it's not a huge amount of time that's passed. A uh, individual called Ben Crown, who's a forensic accountant and somebody who does some fantastic work in, in the community, particularly on social media, did his own research based on the FSA, and he found that 15% 15% of kosher businesses in Barnet have been rated zero to two, which is the, obviously the two lowest grades or three lowest grades you could have, compared to only 6% of general places where you can buy food in Barnet. Obviously, quite shocking news you would expect in terms of pricing and in terms of overseeing the process that kosher food should be better quality, better prepared, better served. So I think this really highlights a, a concern. And United Synagogue has, has said that uh, it's the responsibility of kosher outlets to ensure food hygiene is up to standard, and they're looking for improvement. Though, of course, we should stress, Justin, that this is not all kosher restaurants in Barnet. This is merely an average, and it's more likely based on what has been found. Yeah, I don't think this is Ben Crown and, and the Jewish News suggesting that it's not safe to go to any kosher restaurants anymore. But clearly, this is a, a problem that exists more in kosher restaurants, it would appear, than, than other ones. Yes, I mean, obviously, everybody's had unfortunate moments in restaurants, whether they be kosher or not. And think it's incumbent upon the Jewish community and the kosher restaurants to up their game. And I think stats like this certainly shine a light on that. Okay, let's have a look at some of the other stories. Also on page four, MPs to debate Hezbollah ban. Yes, followers of this program will be more than familiar with this, the ongoing sore that is the fact that Hezbollah is only partly banned in this country. The military wing is banned, but there's a separation in the law with the political wing, which meant that recent years and months we've seen Hezbollah flags on the streets of London, and even more ridiculously, we've seen people putting special stickers onto those Hezbollah flags, which feature AK-47s, saying we're just supporting the political wing. 
Anyway, now things are moving on. There, The community has long been calling for a full designation of Hezbollah and no distinction between those two wings. And now there's a debate being secured in Parliament later this month. Debate to discuss whether Hezbollah should be fully banned as an organisation. Uh, this is being supported by uh, MPs from across the political spectrum and spearheaded by the Friends of Israel groups. It's a positive development. Hopefully we might this year see finally movement on what appears to be something that obviously should happen. And it is extraordinary that it has taken to this point in time, considering how long we have spoken about this for, not only on this program, but I'm sure as a community it's come up several times. And it's only at this stage that it's going to be discussed in Parliament, as opposed to actually action being taken. It does seem like it really is dragging on. We, the Jewish community, are not the only ones that are confused about the current status quo. The, the Metropolitan Police, the Mayor's Office, local government, all, the Home Secretary even, all seem to be passing this hot potato round. I hope that finally sense will prevail and that members of the Jewish community will not see this take place on the streets of London this year. Okay, now let's totally and utterly jump a few pages, shall we? Page 40, to be precise, which is actually the back page, or back couple of pages. The Night of Heroes for 2018. What's the update? Yes, I'm delighted to say that this is the event which will take place next month in central London, a prestigious venue honouring unsung heroes across the community, those who have shown through inspirational acts or dedication or commitment or bravery across the years that they're truly deserving of that title hero. And we're delighted to announce today that Tokyo Myers, the most recent winner of Britain's Got Talent, the amazing pianist, will be performing at Night of Heroes. David Walliams, we've previously announced as the host. And we've still got one more act we'll be announcing in due course. Excellent. Thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. But don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. As we heard a little earlier on in this programme, a 16-year-old boy has appeared in court charged with the murder of a shopkeeper in Mill Hill last Saturday. Vijay Patel, who was 49, was attacked after he refused to sell cigarette papers to a group of three teenagers. Rabbi Yitzhak Shochet from Mill Hill United Synagogue has started a crowd fundraiser to help Mr Patel's family. And I caught up with Rabbi Shochet earlier this week. I started by asking him to tell us why he felt the need to get involved. We became aware of what had happened first thing Sunday morning, even though he was attacked at his store on the Saturday night, mostly because most of Mill Hill was cordoned off. And at that point, we only heard, as was the case, that he had been critically injured. I think it was early Tuesday morning when word spread that he had succumbed to his injuries. And Mill Hill is a nice leafy suburb of northwest London. There's a lot of coffee shops on the Broadway. There's a lot of camaraderie. There are interfaith events that happen during the course of the year. So it's quite diverse, and there's a lot of camaraderie, as I say, throughout. And therefore, when something happens to one of us, it affects all of us. And there was some conversation going on on our closed Facebook page within the Mill Hill Synagogue community about, you know, how terrible, how tragic. I wish there was something we can do. And it's often the case that people feel that they want to somehow express some form of help or a of grief that may be felt. 
And it just struck me that the most obvious thing, having heard that he left behind a wife and two children, would be to launch a Just Giving crowdfunding page, where I set the bar low, admittedly, at about a thousand pounds, anticipating that I would exceed that maybe to the tune of two, three, up to a maximum of five thousand pounds. And I was motivated generally by wanting to do something on behalf of everybody that felt the real burning need to express some condolence to the family. But of course, that target or that expectation or hope of £5,000 has even far surpassed that. Where are you at at the moment? The target of 1000 has been far surpassed to a point where, as we speak right now, we are just shy of £22,000. Which is absolutely extraordinary because to anyone who doesn't know Mill Hill... They might be forgiven for thinking that, oh, it's just another incident. It's just another occurrence where someone has been attacked. But this is almost unheard of in this area. The attack itself is certainly very much unheard of in the area. And that's why in its own unique way, it struck at everybody. But there's something else that needs to be said over here, because there are often, tragically, victims of different sorts right across the city. And people hear about it and people might respond to it in whichever way by just bemoaning what's going on in society. And that's the long and the short of it. And the victims in the meantime and their families are almost just an afterthought just a few days later. I think what has essentially happened over here and why there's so much more emphasis on this, it is in part because it has happened in Mill Hill, where it's an extreme rarity, but also because... It's extremely unusual, sad as that might be, that a community that is not in any real way connected to the victim, apart from the few of us who might have known him from going in and out of the shop, to react in the way that it did. That drew the attention of the media such that here we are three days running, four days running, and the story is still being told. On one level, it's a story no different than, again, tragically so many others that happen across this city or this country on a pretty much daily basis. On an altogether different level, the communal response is fundamentally different. And that has perked the curiosity, if nothing else, of the media. And it kind of sends out a very important message about the fact that there's so much polarization in this, our 21st century. You know, earlier today, I did an interview with the BBC in India. And he asked me the point blank question, you're a Jewish community. This is an Indian man, a Hindu. Did you hesitate? before you launch this campaign? It was a fair question, and my immediate response was no. It was the most obvious and natural thing to do, in the first instance, for me as a Jew. But more than that, it kind of sends a message out there about how there is all of this polarization, and increasingly more so in this 21st century, which feeds into all new kinds of racism, anti-Semitism, xenophobia, etc. And this is just one small example of how we can bridge that gap and bring people closer together again. At what stage will you make contact with the family, assuming you will be the one to make contact with Mr. Patel's family, to give them this amount of money, this incredible amount of money that's been raised? So the initial intent was to keep the campaign going till Friday, just before the onset of Shabbat. But Just Giving has a policy now, apparently, where you can only run the campaign for a minimum of 30 days. So invariably, that's how long it will have to run regardless. And I'm sure it'll keep on coming in. At some point, it might only start to trickle in. 
as we are standing at 22,000 now, I have to safely assume that in another 27 days time, we'll probably hit easily the 30,000 mark. I've already reached out to one or two people who have contact directly with the wife, and I'm hoping through them to be able to make direct contact with her. And the intent is that immediately at the end of the 30 days, the money will be handed over to her to help towards whatever personal costs, funeral costs, etc. Now, based on that, where we are at the moment, which is your house, you are, I reckon, about a three, four minute drive away from the very shop where Mr. Patel was attacked. Had you been in there? Did you know him? I had been there many times because although we're sitting here in my house, my office and my synagogue is literally around the corner, not a 30 second walk from his store. So I would have had plenty of opportunity to go in there sometimes just to grab a fruit during a lunch break or for other brick and brack that he was selling through the store. And this must be, in that case, even more personal to you then, if you knew him that well. I can't say that I knew him well anymore that I would know the bank teller in Barclays across the street in that I get to know them and they see me. I'm a familiar face on those streets now for 25 years, although Mr. Patel himself has only been here for the last number of years. But you always get to know the faces. There's always the smile. There's always the how you doing. So there's that just general sense of awareness. And what makes this particular case even more senseless is that he wasn't actually doing anything wrong. When any shopkeeper serves anyone, they are well within legal right to refuse to sell them. Subsequently, it would appear that he got attacked for refusing to sell to a group of individuals who we can't talk about them because obviously they have now been charged or one in particular has been charged with murder. So we must make sure we leave them out of it. But it's just senseless that he was working. He was just going about his business. That again is an element of what has struck at people. It's literally the case of one man looking to uphold the law effectively, just wanting to do the right thing. There may be others who would have just decided to give them a pass. But in looking to do the right thing, he paid the ultimate price. And that obviously always strikes at the core of people because that leaves a lot of raw emotion. There are times like this, though, when people would find it quite hard to see reason behind why an incident like this would have occurred. And often we turn to, dare I say, religious guidance almost to sort of try and understand it. What comforts and what sort of should we take from this horrible occurrence? I personally would draw three conclusions. The first is that we as a Jewish community clearly know how to rise to the challenge when it presents itself, as was demonstrated from the vast amounts of monies raised. The second is that we don't only care for ourselves, but obviously reach out to others when the need arises as well. But perhaps most poignant is the fact that when something like this happens, we all tend to question, we all tend to just reflect sometimes on the madness and the chaos of our world around us today. And yet you get this kind of response, not just from the Jewish, but indeed the wider community of so much money is raised for somebody whom almost all of them don't even really know. And that restores faith in humanity. Rabbi Yitzhak Shochet from Mill Hill United Synagogue speaking to me there and telling us why he's been doing his part to raise funds for the family of murdered shopkeeper Vijay Patel from Mill Hill.
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive will be joined by broadcaster John Kay, photographer Avi Wachman and journalist Gloria Tesla. And they'll be discussing, in light of what we've seen in Mill Hill in this past week, how important is it for the community to help other minority communities and to work with them. Plus, as community editor Diana Toman is away this week, our very own Kate Fulton will be speaking to Victoria Sturman from Resource, who will be telling us how they help older members of the community back into the workplace. But first, if you're a bit of an arts lover, then you may be very familiar with the works of the Ben Uri Gallery in Northwest London. But have you ever thought of it as a music venue? Well, a new event that they've got coming up this month, entitled January Jazz, is set to put a different spin on the way the gallery functions. Harley Baptiste has been speaking to one Alex Smith, the gallery manager of the Benary Gallery, about the event. And Harley started by asking Alex to tell us what exactly is January Jazz. Well, January Jazz is part of a season of events to mark our current exhibition, which is being held at the gallery. So the exhibition is A Farewell to Art, Chagall, Shakespeare and Prospero. Uh, And it's it's an exhibition of rare limited edition artworks by Mark Chagall. He produced them at the age of 88 and he actually created the artworks to reflect his interpretation of Shakespeare's play The Tempest. So we have a whole exhibition of Mark Chagall's illustrations, which illustrate the play The Tempest. So what we wanted to do was program a season of different events which reflected some of the themes of the exhibition. And so we've come up with a wide range of different events. We've had all sorts of things from magic shows for children, book binding, calligraphy, screen printing. And, and now we're going to be having a jazz concert. So it's the first time that Benary, well, in, in recent history anyway, has had a musical performance here at the gallery. So we wanted to develop a performance which reflected some of the themes of the exhibition and the key themes of mischief and magic. And we we thought it would be really good fun to have an afternoon of jazz at the gallery. So the performances, we have two jazz musicians, Jerry Hunt, who'll be playing guitar, and Dave Blackmore, who'll be playing saxophone and clarinet. And they'll be providing an, an improvisation, a performance which responds to the themes of the exhibition um, and hopefully a bit of musical magic for the afternoon. The idea is that guests can, can come along and have a glass of wine, look around the exhibition, get to see the exhibition and then sit down and listen to the performance afterwards. It's very cool that because obviously the gallery is closing half an hour before the actual performance so people will come in and be able to have a almost a private um, sort of view of the, of the exhibition which is quite cool. Yeah it's a kind of out of, out of hours viewing of the exhibition so people can walk around it at their leisure and have a look at the exhibition see all of the artworks and then as I say sit down and maybe enjoy a drink and, and listen to the performance afterwards. And also what I really like about this as well is that as you say you've got a load of different things going on including this jazz concert. How did that come about because jazz and, and art are, are two very different things but they, they just seem to go very well together, they seem to marry very well together. How, how did that concept come about? We wanted to have a really broad programme of events to reflect the exciting themes of the exhibition. It lends itself, being a Chagall and Shakespeare, it lends itself very well to a variety of different sorts of events that we could explore. So as I say, we've looked at the visual arts 
through bookbinding and calligraphy and screen printing. And we also had a magic show for children over the holiday period. But we also wanted to include music in our programming. And we thought about kind of mischievous experimental nature of jazz and we thought that it lends itself well to the themes of the exhibition and so we wanted to add this new dimension to our programming really we're going to be also hopefully having some classical musicians for our next exhibition but we thought that jazz would be a good place to start yeah i can see it being something where when you're walking around and when you want the music building with the uh, the atmosphere and the and uh, the background behind you jazz is probably the first thing that will come to my mind that will just work just perfectly yeah yeah exactly that's that's what we thought we thought it would be as i say a a really good way of exploring the themes of the exhibition Mm. and a first introduction to music in the gallery as well to have music in the gallery setting so we wanted something which was exciting and fun but equally quite soothing it's a sunday afternoon so we wanted people to be able to have a relaxing time when they come along just touching on the exhibition real quick so as you say a farewell to art sugar shakespeare what can people expect from Chagall's art? Well, what will they expect to find when they enter into the exhibition? Yeah, well, this is a really special exhibition. As, as we say, it's the first UK exhibition of this collection of artworks. And it's Chagall's illustrations for the play The Tempest. So as you come into the gallery, you're completely surrounded by Chagall's illustrations. And all of the different illustrations reflect different parts of the story of The Tempest, alongside, obviously, the play itself. And you can actually see how the illustrations were presented in a book form. So we have the original book cover and the original box that the book is displayed in. So it's very, very interesting. Each illustration, you can spend a long time looking very carefully at each illustration and finding new things in it each time. So the exhibition has been on for a little while now, and yet I still stop and still notice new things when I come into the gallery in each of the, of the illustrations. That's very cool. And the exhibition is going on until February, I believe. That's February right. the 11th, yes. So the exhibition is on for another month yet. We're going to be having, as I say, different events to mark the exhibition right up until the exhibition closes in, in mid-Feb. And what makes Ben Uri different as a gallery to other galleries? Why would someone go to Ben Uri uh, as opposed to another one? Uh, well, Benary is it's a fascinating place to work. It's a fascinating gallery. We have a wide and very varied programme of different exhibitions. Obviously, the, we have the Benary collection, which has over 1,300 works in it. So the collection itself um, is a fascinating range of different artworks. But Benary also has a regular programme of temporary exhibitions, which explore a variety of different themes and artists along the key themes of art, my identity and migration. So this current exhibition, as I say, explores Chagall and Shakespeare. The next exhibition is going to be called Out of Austria, which is going to bring together 40 works by a number of Austrian-born artists who immigrated to Britain during the era of National Socialism. So there's lots and lots of different themes. We have lots of different exhibitions exploring different time periods, different artists from different migrant communities. So it's a very interesting place to come and visit. 
Alex Smith, the gallery manager of the Ben Uri Gallery in northwest London, speaking to Jewish Views' Harley Baptiste there about January Jazz, which is coming up on the 28th of this month. If you would like more information, then you can head over to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Still to come will be our rabbinic thought for the week, which comes from Rabbi Ben Kurzer of Edgware United Synagogue. That's a little later on. Just ahead of that will be our schmooze. And remember, you can always catch the live stream of the schmooze every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. And please also do feel free to share your Jewish Views with us. You can post comments on the Facebook page. You can also comment on Twitter at Jewish Views UK, and you can even email us studio at jewishviews.co.uk. Now, when it comes to work ethics in the community, I think it's fair to say that Jews are quite high up there in terms of the way that we portray ourselves as hardworking people. But what if you are an older member of the community who has been struggling to get back into the workplace and you're not quite sure which way to turn? There is an event that is coming up at JW3 held by Resource, which is a charity aimed at helping people back into the workplace. Their event is called the Ageless Job Search, and it's happening on the 17th of January at JW3. Kate Fulton has been finding out more about this for us by speaking to the chief executive of Resource, Victoria Sturman. Kate started by asking Victoria to tell us what exactly is the Ageless Job Search. Yeah, so this is actually the first of a series that we're doing. We've not done this before, but we've done some work looking at older people and some of the difficulties they're facing in getting into the job market. And we're doing initially a one-off workshop at JW3. It's Wednesday week, so it's Wednesday the 17th of January. This is open to everybody to attend. And it's looking at some of the barriers, some of the difficulties that people face getting into work. And this is through experience that we've had at helping clients. We know it's difficult. It gets harder as you get older. We're not going to pretend that it doesn't. But we know that there are a lot of things that you can do to overcome that and to make it easier. I wouldn't say that it's all a state of mind and it's just, you know, how you feel. But actually, there's quite a lot that you can do about how you feel about yourself and how you present yourself, how you, how you dress yourself for interview. You can do things with your CV. To, we call it the ageless CV. And we're going to talk about how you can make your CV as ageless as possible, as, as little old fashioned as possible, as, uh, as current and as modern as possible. What happens though, I mean, practically, it, it, it sounds like a good idea. So, so, so somebody may be in their sort of, I don't know, late forties, if that's, mm-hmm. if that's late, early fifties, mid fifties, let's suppose later on. How do they, if they've done O levels or mm-hmm. if they've done something, if they've not had the technological input that other people have, how do they change those on their CV? How do you say O levels, for example? Mm-hmm. So actually, we would recommend taking O-levels off if they've got O-levels. If they've got GCSEs, fine. But if they've got O-levels, like me, we would start with A-levels because we don't want to go far, as far back as O-levels. You know, there's, we really, some people have the, make the mistake of wanting to include everything. You know, they've achieved lots of things years and years and years ago. But actually, for an employer, it, it's rarely relevant. And it does tend to age people. So unless it's particularly relevant and you need it in there, we would suggest taking it out. So at this workshop, it's very exciting that Baroness Altman has agreed to be our guest speaker. So she's going to give us a presentation about valuing the older, the value of the older worker. She's done a lot of work in um, the older worker, being the champion of of older workers um, for the government. We are going to have sessions from Gillian Merrin, who's the Chief Executive of the Board of Deputies, and one of her colleagues from SmartWorks, an organisation that helps people dress for interviews. They actually give people clothes to wear for interviews if they need them, and they give makeover advice. 
We have got Nigel Risner, who's a motivational speaker, who is going to help people with their self-confidence. And we know self-confidence is a big issue when it comes to applying for jobs, and that's at any age, but it, it only increases as we get older. We've got some of resources facilitators talking about CVs and interviews, and also we're going to look at social media in job search. We're going to try and demystify it a bit without going into a huge amount of details on each of the social media platforms. We're just going to make people, people feel more confident about what is Facebook about and why do I need to understand it for, for job search? Similarly, Instagram, Snapchat and Twitter as well will cover. So people should really have all those as, as media outlets, as, as profiles for themselves? Whilst it's very nice to have these profiles and LinkedIn we find very useful for job search, for the purposes of their job search and for interview, it's just good that they're not frightened of these terms, that they can just talk as if they know what they are. You know, we're going to teach people that you can, you know, you can look comfortable with something without really having to use it. Some of our, you know, the people we work with probably don't use Facebook and, you know, you don't have to use social media, but at least it tends to aid you if you have never even tried it and don't really understand it. So there's maybe some people listening who are companies, who are employers or potential employers. How can they be encouraged? What advice would you give them to be age neutral, to be a little bit more broad thinking, to maybe not just expect a, a dynamic 20-something-year-old to be the first person they think of as, as a new intern? So the advice I'd give to employers is... The, consider the value of the older worker. This older worker tends to be somebody who's finished having their family, who is unlikely to need time off to look after children, is, is not going to go on maternity leave and you won't have to give them a year off. Probably won't be after your job. May be quite happy to be in the same job. Is likely, and I think research shows, is likely to stay in a job longer and is, is, is unlikely to be looking for the next move very quickly. So on the whole, these older workers give stability, a lot of loyalty and are hardworking. There is a perception, which is, is, is incorrect in my opinion, that they take longer to train. I think, you know, it's a part of your recruitment processes. I'm sure you would test your employees and check that they can use the... IT packages, for example, that, that you need them to use. But otherwise, there is no reason to think that they would need more training than anyone else. But on the whole, this is a, a worker who is likely to be hardworking, very loyal, and may need less, less time off than somebody younger. And maybe when people are advertising, they shouldn't put words in that would, in, would encourage older workers to feel that they're not going to be welcome. Yes, absolutely. There's quite a lot of companies now that are trying to encourage older workers because, you know, after all, they, 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 they need them. There's a shortage in various industries. And so as part of this workshop, actually, we're going to give people a list of the companies that are, are actually very receptive to older workers. And there's also some agencies as well. There are a few recruitment agencies that specialise in older workers as well. Right, back to the seminar. Where is it? When is it? Who can, who can go and how do you register? The seminar is at JW3 on the Finchley Road in Swiss Cottage. It's on Wednesday, the 17th of January. It's from 10 o'clock till 1 o'clock. The registration can be found on Resources website, and the website is resource-centre.org. There's a What's On section, and in that, um, you'll find something called the Ageless job search workshop. There's a link to our booking page, which is in Eventbrite. There's a £5 registration fee and there are a few places available. They're going very fast, so we'd recommend that you book up quickly. And it's not, it, although it is ageless, is it for mainly people looking for a job or people who think they may be looking for a job? Or is it, are we limiting it to people who are currently looking? 
No, it is absolutely open to everybody because those people who are currently in jobs may be looking again at some point in the future. So anybody who's really interested in in learning about how to improve their chances of getting a job, anyone who thinks that they may face discrimination at some point in the future due to age, and actually anyone who's just curious to hear Baroness Altman and the rest of the resource team speak are very welcome to come. Victoria Sturman, the Chief Executive of Resource, speaking to Kate Fulton there. If you would like more information, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining John Kay and me today are journalist Gloria Tesla and photographer Avi Wachmann. The subject for this edition is based on what we heard Phil talking to Rabbi Shochet about earlier on. A crowd fundraiser has been started to help the family of murdered shopkeeper Vijay Patel. The question is, how important is it for us to work with and support other minority communities? Avi, let's start with you. You're quite involved with your community at the shul, but how about working with other minorities in the area? I don't know much about what my community does for people in in the area. I think, though, that this is obviously a a very positive thing and it should always be looked, looked for, this kind of thing. So it's clear to me that it's a very positive thing. I doubt anybody would argue with that. Would you argue with it? Absolutely not. I applaud it. I think it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful measure, and it kind of shows you how not just that Jews can remember that we are still a minority, albeit a vocal one, and that we have had awful experiences that don't need describing here as a minority in Europe. But I think the fact that we can show compassion and care for other minorities in our area, in our community, and outside the community, is a very, very important step forward for sort of general mutual understanding. I actually think, as I'm saying this, it doesn't really matter whether it's another minority or anybody, you know. Somebody who has been attacked in this dreadful way is already, in a sense, a minority, because it's a minority in the sense most of us hope never to experience something like that. But for this unfortunate person and the whole family, it seems to will seem to be very much a minority experience and an extremely tragic one, and I think everybody should rally round, and there is nothing at all to be said against it. It's interesting you say that, you see, because a few weeks ago on this very discussion programme, the very schmooze, we actually talked about the fact that there were so many people in Golders Green who were against the fact that the Hippodrome there has been turned, or is been turning into, an Islamic temple. And a lot of Jews have been against it. It argues with your point of view. What do you think, John? Well, I applaud what's going on in Mill Hill. I think after that dreadful murder of Mr Patel, I think the shawl, Mill Hill shawl, raised £10,000 in one day, which I think as is... As much as that? Yes. And I think that is really to the credit of that community. And presumably, members of that particular shawl would go into Mill Hill Broadway or wherever it took place locally and bought newspapers from this news agent and probably knew him actually quite well. Now, I don't know whether 
whether Mr. Patel is, is Hindu or, or Muslim. Oh, if his name's Patel, he's a Hindu. Hindu, probably. Mm. But he's a member of a minority. We're a member of a minority. There used to be a close association in the East End between Fieldgate Street Synagogue when it existed and East London Mosque right next door. And in the end, when Fieldgate Street Synagogue closed down, the mosque actually bought Fieldgate Street Shul. And there was another case in Muswell Hill, where I remember the United Synagogue and the rabbi there was very much involved in helping a Muslim community after, I think it was a terrorist attack or some sort of conflict took place. And I think in order to reduce fear, and really, it's interesting that I'm involved in organising the first Holocaust Memorial Day event that East Hearts Council has ever done. And that's an area that is doesn't have a lot of people from diverse backgrounds, not that many Jews, not that many Muslims or people from other communities. But in order to reduce what fear there may well be, I'm, I think it's important that we engage with people from other communities and perhaps become friends of people from other communities because a lot of this is is based on fear. And I feel that possibly coming back to the Islamic temple in Golders Green, or not a temple, I think it's a community centre. Again, it's, it's based on fear. What sort of fear people in Canvey Island might have had when the Hasidic Jews decided to move out there, I don't know. So far... Things I think have gone there relatively smooth. There was a very interesting smooth. article in the Times the other day about that and saying that the people of Canvey Island were being very friendly and, and enjoying the very Hasidic Jews who've arrived there. Well, I remember at one time when they were thinking of moving out somewhere, I'm not sure if it was Hertfordshire or Buckinghamshire, you know, local bigwigs were saying, well, providing they mix with the community, that's fine. Of course, they're not going to mix with the community. That's not because they don't want to. It's because of, of Kashrut and lots of other reasons. And that's difficult sometimes for other people to understand. You say that, but in fact, there was a picture in the Times of the two communities, the non Jewish community and the very religious Jewish community having a meal together well, that, I, I on Canvey Island. Why not? I mean, so it's all working very well. But, but that's great and that's important. Because... It's, it's interesting because it seems to me that there used to be a very well-known Jewish charity whose whole idea was to help non-Jews rather than be a Jewish charity. I don't know specifically about this charity, but I mean, it's, it's, it's part of our ideology as a people to help minorities. I mean, if you look at the, the, the blacks in America, if you look at Martin Luther King and his movement, the backing that he had was very strongly Jewish. And the, the, the idea of uh, the righteous Gentile is something that's always looked at very positively. And, and we have in Yad Vashem, there's a whole department that just deals with that so when you're talking about minorities and we have a problem it is incumbent upon us to help and anybody in in goldish green who is against the hippodrome i think they're just they're just really for want of a better word i i i'll just call it stupid well, it may be stupid but I, I, not that i agree with them at all but they're they're worried about feelings against them in goldish green 
I walk my dog in Hendon Park and I meet all sorts of other dog walkers of all faiths, religions, sizes and everything. Uh, the people, not the dogs, I mean. And uh, there's um, a very devout Christian couple that I've come to know reasonably well who live amongst Jewish people and are always concerned that they can't invite them in for dinner or tea or anything because they're so devout. And the wife, she said to me, oh, this is terrible about this, what's going on in the Hippodrome and they're going to make it an Islamic centre and you must do something, you must write about it, you must condemn it. And I said, why? I think, you know, it's really important that we should be inclusive because the first way to being being inclusive is to, well, actually act that way, to look at other people and see there is a resonance within them and... Are these people you're talking about, are they born-again Christians? I don't think so, no. She, she is, well, well, the interesting thing about her, she would have been brought up in Soviet Russia. Her husband is English, but they are, I mean, they are the sort of people that say only Jesus saves, as they said one night when they came over. Mm. But they can't quite see where other religions are coming from or going to. And maybe this is the reason why she took that view. She said, Golders Green is a Jewish area, you can't have this, you must... Resist it. And we must remember, too, that Russia and Eastern Europe, people from those countries are not used to seeing people from other backgrounds. And we know when footballers go and play, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the World Cup in Russia later this year, and those those black players do get an awful lot of things shouted at them, which we've banished years ago in, in this country and in much of Western Europe. We have a standard. We have a standard we, we believe in, in our religion and our people. And part of that standard is helping people who need help, regardless of what their religion is. So we just have to be kind. If we want people to be kind with us and we have that expectation, we cannot have that only one way. We have to be kind as a people as well. But do people really live up to that? <clears throat> well, they should. I don't. They probably don't. But, I mean, that's what we strive for. That's what we want to see. Our writings teach us that we have to be charitable. There is, it's true, you have to be more charitable to those who live in your city than those who live in a different city. But it's, it's, it's inarguable whether if you have Gentiles in your city and you have Jews who live far away, who you're supposed to be more charitable to. I would argue that you should be charitable wherever you possibly can. Isn't one of the problems, though, that sometimes some people fear that certain communities, the sheer numbers of people, for example, if you have an Islamic centre or if you have a synagogue that's going to be opening up, you are going to attract people of that particular region, perhaps in large numbers. Mm. And some people have seen communities in London change quite dramatically. You're right. It's, uh, and, it's always uh, the case. And, and sort of the, the, the white secular Christians have moved out to Essex. Wherever there's Jews, the Gentiles will come. And if you have a Jewish school like King Solomon High School in close to where Redford. I live, mm-hmm. and now it's not mostly Jewish, I think that the, the, fir- in, the in the first instance, people wanted to go there when if they were from India or they were black because it was a white school. So it's true. But wherever you have Jews, the real estate, the, the, the houses, the prices always go up. But notwithstanding that argument, which is a valid one, if we expect to have a higher standard, we have to behave to a higher standard as well. If we want a higher standard applied to us by other people. We're supposed to be a light unto the nations. Exactly. That's what it says. In the That's what it says. But in yes. fact, nowadays, if you go to any synagogue, every Shabbat, there has to be huge security 
to allow people in, and they also have to make sure they know who you are, in case, God forbid, you may be somebody that may cause trouble, which doesn't say very much for the Jewish side, does it? It reminds me a bit, I met a policeman who is a policeman in the Enfield area, and he lives in a rural part of Hertfordshire. And one of the things he does is on Rosh Hashanah, he'll patrol around all the various synagogues in the area. And he says he always gets received extremely well by Orthodox, liberal, any of the synagogues. And he said he can't understand why people don't like Jews. And it reminds me a bit of the old, you know, joke about it's all the fault of the Jews and the cyclists. And you say, well, why the cyclists? We could equally say, why the Jews? Yes, I suppose you have a point there. But it is a thought that you've got to think about. If you are Jewish, and I'm not on the side of the Jews of Golders Green in the slightest about the Islamic temple, but I do understand why they think that, because they've got this tremendous thought that everybody hates the Jews and don't hate everybody else. And indeed also, talking about the very devout Christians as you're talking about, the born-again Christians believe that you've got to be good to the Jews because when Jesus comes again, all the Jews have to go back to Israel and become converted to Christianity. That's why they're pro-Jewish. That is true, yes. I suppose some of them think that, but I wonder how literally they really take it. Well, I know some who, who definitely do, yes. believe it well, quite they, literally. They will be Look, Clive, I can understand why, why people are maybe in the first instance initially have some kind of fear when they see an influx of Muslims or, or other religions come into Golders Green. It's very important, I think. We have rules and regulations regarding saving people, and there isn't, I mean, on, for example, on Shabbat, or if you have to, to, to desecrate Shabbat in order to save a soul, and there is no difference if well, someone is a Jew are. or not. There we are. We'll have to leave it at that point because it's been a very interesting discussion, but our time is up. So thank you all very much indeed. My thanks to John Kay and our guests, journalist Gloria Tesla and photographer Avi Wachmann. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views, or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Ben Kurzer from Edgeware United Synagogue. Freedom is one of the most core values of our society. As Jews, we have benefited from this tremendously. The ability to practice our religion freely is a privilege many of our ancestors would have wished for. It is a right we believe is due to everybody, a right due no matter their origin, and something we would fight for if it were taken away. But if we take a moment to consider what freedom is, we may find it difficult to define and sometimes self-contradicting. As an example, one of the most fundamental freedoms we enjoy is freedom of speech. Yet we have struggled recently to define when it should and shouldn't be free. At one extreme, we can all agree that hate speech should never be allowed and that that would impinge on another fundamental freedom, the freedom from fear. 
Yet where exactly we draw the line has become a challenge. We practice our religion with freedom, an amazing privilege. But do we have the freedom to follow all of our values, or are they questioned when they don't fall in line with those of society around us? Too often in recent history, we find ourselves defending religious practices, both in and out of court, despite the fact that freedom of religion is part of our justice system. Some definitions of freedom we can never accept. Freedom from obligation is simply entitlement. Freedom to do whatever we choose has been the belief of some of the most oppressive tyrants of history. And those who fight in the name of freedom have at times subjugated, dominated and enslaved their opposition. The Torah's definition of freedom is too nuanced to condense into a few minutes. But we see in Parashat Va'era two opposites of freedom which help us shed light on its meaning. After the first few plagues, God famously hardens Pharaoh's heart, and many commentators are bothered by this. How can God seemingly withdraw Pharaoh's freedom of choice? Isn't a person's ability to choose fundamental to Torah belief? How could he be punished if he had no choice? Some commentators say that the punishment was for earlier, when Pharaoh had a choice. Others suggest that his heart was hardened specifically to restore his free choice and help him withstand the pressure that the plagues were piling on him to let the Jews go. The Talmud itself seems to offer a third explanation. When a person succumbs to evil desire, many times they cease to be in control and ultimately become enslaved. Pharaoh, the master of Egypt, with thousands if not millions of slaves at his mercy, was in fact enslaved within himself. Let us now consider the freedom that Moses asks for on behalf of his people. He uses a phrase that has become incredibly famous, let my people go. Yet that is only part of the quote. We seem to forget the end. What he in fact says on God's behalf is let my people go so that they may serve me. Let my people go is a freedom from all restraint one that leads to indulgence, entitlement, and ultimately enslavement to our most base desires. Let my people go so that they may serve me is true freedom. The freedom to be in control of ourselves, the freedom to know what is right and to choose it, ultimately the only freedom that allows us to flourish without limitation. Freedom is something that we all take so much for granted in this country. We are very free to do virtually whatever we want. And we always find it slightly shocking at the thought that any other country could put the restrictions in place that they do. If you have a stop and think about some countries where they don't even let people drive based on their sex. In comparison, this country, you couldn't imagine anything further being from the truth. And it is extraordinary how a moment like that does make you sit up and listen and think exactly what freedom does mean to us. Thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Ben Kurzer from Edgeware United Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much to all of our guests, to Rabbi Yitzhak Shochet from Mill Hill United Synagogue, telling us why he was raising money for the murdered shopkeeper Vijay Patel of Mill Hill. To Alex Smith, gallery manager of the Ben Uri Gallery, talking about Jazz January. Don't forget that's coming up on the 28th of this month. Victoria Sturman, chief executive of Resource, telling us about the ageless job search. And that is happening on the 17th of January at JW3. 
Marie, to all of our other contributors, and of course to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the link to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.